Well, uh, the Pied Piper of Hamlin is a legend that dates all the way back to the Middle Ages. Uh, the earliest references uh, describe a piper dressed in a multicolored or uh, pied clothing is what it was called, pied clothing. My uh, clicker isn't working, Becky, if you'd advance that for me. Thank you. Um, he used this magic flute that he used to carry to catch rats. See, the, the town of Hamlin, Germany, had a real problem with rat infestation. And so the poet Pied Piper went to the mayor of the town and he proposed that for a fee, uh, he would draw all of these rats out of the town uh, and away to someplace else. So after they agreed upon a price, uh, the Piper played his flutes, he drew the rats to this river called the Weezer, Weezer River, and they all drowned in the river. Well, when the piper came to collect his fee, the mayor reneged, and the Pied Piper stormed out of town, vowing one day to return and have his revenge. Well, one day, while all the adults were in church, uh, the piper returned playing his pipe, and this attracted all of the unattended children, which is a lesson to y'all, bring your kids to church, or else... <laughs> The Pied Piper might come and take your children away. So the Pied Piper uh, leads all these children to some dark cave where they all perished. And I don't know if you all have read ancient fairy tales from the Middle Ages. These are some dark, dark tales. And it's uh, striking to me that these are modeled and marketed as children's stories. Uh, but nonetheless, this is the tale of the Pied Piper. Well, Merriam-Webster defines the Pied Piper, or a Pied Piper, as a charismatic person who can attract attention, or a leader uh, who makes irresponsible promises. Uh, and so we watch out for Pied Pipers, right? The moral of the story is be careful uh, who you follow, that and, and pay the bills that you promise to pay. But uh, the moral of the story is to, is to uh, be careful who you follow uh, and be careful of what they promise because not all leaders have the best intentions uh, in mind. Uh, and following the wrong leader can sometimes even result in death, as we see in this legend. So we're in the third week of Advent now, and our theme this week, as we said, is joy. And what we're trying to do is to tie each week's Advent theme uh, to one specific reason that Jesus said that he came. So in week one, our theme was hope, uh, and it was the hope of salvation that Zacchaeus found. We looked at Luke chapter 19. Uh, Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then last week, week two, our theme was peace. And Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so when we have an attitude of service rather than an attitude of superiority and supremacy, we can have peace with God, peace with ourselves, and then peace with others. And this week now, we're looking at another specific reason that Jesus said he came. John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Now, there are a lot of Pied Pipers in the world today, or to use the metaphor that Jesus used throughout John chapter 10, there are a lot of false shepherds, thieves, and robbers. So if we know the true shepherd, the good shepherd, and follow his voice, we can have life abundantly. And when we think about life abundantly, the synonym for that is joy, right? Abundant life equals joy. And we can have true joy no matter what happens in the world today because Jesus took on human flesh on Christmas Day. He died for our sins, and he gives eternal life to all who believe. Now, before we jump into John chapter 10, let's look at the end of John chapter 9 just for a little bit of context. 
Remember there that Jesus healed a blind man, right? And the Pharisees were livid that somebody worked on the Sabbath, that somebody would, would do a healing on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees demanded of the man who had been healed. He want, they wanted to know, who is it? Who is the man who did this? And the man who had been healed said, I, I don't know who he is. Uh, but we know uh, that he must be from God because God doesn't hear sinners. He hears those who do his will. Well, the Pharisees sure didn't like being lectured by this man who had been born blind. Uh, and so they cast him out of the synagogue. And then later, Jesus found this man uh, sitting alone and uh, he revealed himself. He revealed himself to the man as the Messiah, the son of man. And this man who had been formerly blind now believed. And then Jesus said right after that, giving yet another purpose statement for why he came, he said, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see may be, or those, so that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. Well, Right after that, right after these scathing words to the Pharisees who were present, that's when Jesus told the parable of the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. So uh, we're going to see Jesus in this parable as the shepherd, and then we're going to see him as the door, and then we're going to see him as the giver of abundant life. So first, as the shepherd, verses 1 through 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were that he had been saying to them. So we can see Jesus' meaning in the parable and understand it a little better when we think about it in the context of John chapter 9. Uh, the Pharisees had set themselves up as the authorities and the rule keepers uh, over the people. And it didn't matter to them that Jesus had just done a miraculous healing. He had done it on the Sabbath, and that broke their rules. And so that was a big problem for them. And if you follow Jesus, well, they had the power to cast you out of the synagogue, which was a very big deal. Because the synagogue is the center for all community life. It's, it's where your families hang out. It's where you make deals. It's where you make friends. It's, it's where you uh, have relationships. And so it would be a real black mark against anyone who was not a member of the synagogue. And it would be hard to find work. It would be hard to have any kind of social interaction or acceptance in social circles if you were not a member of the synagogue. And the Pharisees had already, de already declared that anybody who uh, says that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And so the blind man and any other Jew who was considering following Jesus, they're in a very tough spot. Uh, they had, had a, to, to choose, either follow the Pharisees uh, and their rules and deny Jesus or follow Christ and be cast out. That's the choice. And so now we can see how Jesus used the parable uh, to show, uh, to contrast himself, the true shepherd, with the false teachers who were the scribes and Pharisees. Now, this is what a sheepfold might have looked like. Uh, it's about a chest-high stone wall enclosure uh, with one entrance, one door or gate. 
Uh, and they might have placed like thorny brambles or something around the top of it to try to keep uh, people out. But there's only one door to the sheepfold, and so there's only one right way in and out of this thing. And sometimes uh, the shepherd would hire a doorkeeper or a gatekeeper uh, who would be his employee to guard the sheep uh, before he came to lead them out to pasture. So the doorkeeper would recognize the shepherd and he would let the shepherd in. So Jesus sets up the contrast in verse 1. Anyone who tries to climb the wall or, or come in some other way than the door was obviously not the shepherd, right? He's, he's got no legal right to be in the sheepfold, so he's either a thief or a robber. Now, those two words in the Greek are, are quite close. Uh, the Greek word for thief stresses the, the trickery, the deceit involved, while the Greek word for, for uh, uh, robber stresses violence. So you have somebody who is deceitful, uh, somebody who's a thief, somebody who's bent on violence and robbery. And those are the Pharisees. They used fear. Uh, they used influence. They used power to control the common people and hold them to a standard of works and performance. And so these are the false shepherds. These are the ones who climb in some other way. And Jesus had just called them blind at the end of John chapter 9. Now, in verse 2, here's the contrast. Here is the shepherd. This is Jesus contrasted with the thieves and the robbers. The doorkeeper recognizes the shepherd and he lets him come in. The sheep hear his voice and they recognize that voice. And the shepherd calls each of his sheep by name and leads them out. And this is just a, a beautiful and intimate picture of our relationship with Jesus, that he knows us by name, just as the sheep shepherd knows all of his, his sheep by name, so Jesus knows all of his children by name. And uh, they know their master's voice, and they follow him out to safe pasture. Now, if you go to Israel today and you're riding on the bus doing the tour, uh, you can see uh, that there are Bedouin uh, shepherds who lead their sheep around even today, uh, protecting them, leading them to food, leading them to water, uh, and keeping them safe from uh, anything that would mean to do them harm. Now, in the Western world, you know, we're used to cowboy movies, right, where cowboys ride horses and there are sheepdogs and they round up the sheep from behind. And, uh, you know, that's, that's our image of what a shepherd does, but not so in first century Israel. The, the shepherd leads the sheep out. Uh, they hear his voice and they follow. The sheep have to distinguish then between the voice of the shepherd and the voices of anyone else who is not the shepherd. Now, we all know that sheep are not the brightest of creatures, right? In fact, they're, they're quite dumb, uh, extremely dumb creatures. And not only that, uh, they have no defense system at all. They have no claws, they have no teeth, they can't run very fast, they can't run very far. Uh, they are completely at the mercy of the shepherd to save, to protect them, uh, or else they will perish. Uh, and so a sheep uh, knows at least, at least he's smart enough to know uh, his shepherd's voice and to follow that. Uh, but a sheep that gets distracted and wanders away from the rest of the flock, well, he's easy pickings for the wolf pack. And this metaphor, uh, I would say, is very applicable to us today. Uh, there are many things that can distract us from following Jesus. And in the parable, Jesus said, the voice of a stranger they will not follow. Uh, so for sheep, it's very simple. Know the voice, follow the voice. But for us, we can filter the voice, right, through various things in our own minds. We, we think, we process information, uh, and, and we can make choices about who we want to follow. And if we're not careful, uh, there are so many voices that are vying for our attention. If we're not careful, we might uh, choose the wrong voice. We might get distracted from the shepherd. 
Uh, and Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount, as you'll remember, not to follow false teachers who will lead us off the narrow road and onto uh, the broad road that leads to destruction. And we can be distracted even if we're believers, right? We can, we can follow the shepherd uh, initially as part of salvation, and then after that, we can still get distracted. Uh, we see that all the time, people wandering away from the truth. So there's choice involved, which we see throughout John's gospel. We have to be careful who we follow. We have to be sure that whoever we're following is proclaiming the name of Jesus and exalting the word of God uh, and that, we, uh, that they're valuing the word of God. Uh, and so what we need to do is just constantly remember to listen to God's voice, follow him, stay close to the shepherd. Well, the Pharisees were so dense, so blind, so deaf, uh, they couldn't even understand what Jesus was saying to them. And he was saying it right to them about what he had just spoken to them in John chapter 9. So notice that Jesus doesn't go back and explain it to them, right? Why doesn't he do that? Well, because they're not his sheep, and he is not their shepherd. So instead of explaining it to them, now he changes the metaphor slightly. In verses 1 to 6, uh, he, he uh, portrays himself as the shepherd. But now here in 7 to 9, he portrays himself as the door. He becomes the door of the sheepfold. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. So here's the second time in these verses that Jesus uses this uh, solemn invocation, truly, truly. Uh, it's meant to, to ensure that they knew he was telling the truth for him to get their attention before he drove the point home. So in verses 1 to 6, he's illustrating the difference between him and the false shepherds, uh, saying that he's the true one and they are false. But now here in 7 to 9, the emphasis is on the I am statement. Uh, this is the third time that Jesus has invoked in the Gospel of John this, this I am, the divine name of God. Uh, Jesus said earlier, I am the bread of life. And he's also said, I am the light of the world. And now he says, I am the door of the sheep. So in relation to the sheepfold itself, Jesus is the door. Uh, sometimes the shepherd slept in a doorway uh, to guard the sheep. You can imagine, and if you, if you close your eyes and think about that, just picture Jesus sitting in that doorway. Uh, and in that sense, Jesus is the door of the sheepfold. He is their protector. And to leave or enter the sheepfold, you have to go through Jesus, which of course reminds us of John 14, 6, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So in that way, uh, he's the door. Uh, and he's the door by which we gain access to the Father. And uh, through Jesus now, we have salvation of our souls. But in relationship to the flock, he's the good shepherd, right? He leads the flock. He's leading them out. Um, uh, so he's, he's leading them to safe pasture, which is a met metaphor for the salvation which follows. And, and when we think about that, it's hard to miss Psalm 23, right? The verse of, verses, first three verses of Psalm 23, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the door. He said, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. And of course, he's referring to Israel's leaders who had gone before him and didn't care for the spiritual good of the people at all, but they were only out for themselves. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 34 is, is a long chapter that begins like this. It says, son of man, uh, which was Ezekiel's name for himself, uh, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, 
Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? And so we can see where Jesus drew his uh, shepherd motif from, right? He takes it from Ezekiel 34. And so the chapter continues to rebuke and berate these false shepherds who are in it only for themselves until the tone changes. Starting in verse 11, uh, God now enters the scene and he promises, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And so the rest of Ezekiel 34 is just this beautiful promise that one day God will come and send the good shepherd. And so all who came before Jesus are all the thieves and robbers, including the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, and they're thieves and robbers because they don't care anything for the flock. They only wanted to protect their own power and their own position, which is what we see throughout the gospel stories. And so we have to say, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Uh, we have people all throughout government and even in churches who only care for themselves. Now, in government, uh, we would tend to expect that, right? It doesn't matter which style, uh, side of the aisle you're on. Uh, there are going to be people who are in it for themselves. But the scary thing is that it happens in churches, too, that they enter the church uh, looking to see how they can benefit from it. And Jesus and Paul both warned that there would be false teachers, ravenous wolves, who arise from within the church. And so that's what we need to be careful of. Now, I've spoken to you before about the, the podcast that's been going around, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, as some of you may have uh, listened to it. Uh, but if you ever doubt uh, that, that a false teacher ca can infiltrate a church, grow that church to massive numbers, be responsible for a huge number of men and women, uh, and actually be a sheep in wolves' clothing, then I would most certainly recommend that you listen to this podcast. Uh, it shows uh, just how susceptible we are as sheep to following strong leaders who may not have our best interests in heart, at heart. Well, Jesus showed the difference between uh, the motivation of the thief and his own motivation as we come to verse 10. Jesus, the giver of abundant life. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here we see yet another contrast, right? The contrast between the thief's motivation and Jesus's motivation. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. They can be hard to recognize. And so when we, when we are, are, are looking at anybody who's, who's trying to be a leader of men, especially in the church, we'll know them by their teaching. Is their teaching orthodox? Is it, is it Christ exalting or is it something else? We'll know them by their deeds. Are they self-serving or are they looking to serve others and, and lift up the name of Christ? We'll know them by their disciples. Do they exhibit the fruit of the Spirit or are they in it for themselves? Uh, false teachers come to steal, to kill and destroy. When the Mars Hill Church came crashing down, uh, it destroyed people's lives. I mean, it is gut-wrenching to listen to some of these uh, personal stories. And uh, when you exalt a leader like that and, and the whole thing comes down, that can destroy your faith too. And some people have had that experience as well. So it's terrifying what false teachers uh, who actually are just thieves and robbers can do in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we're always on the lookout for false teachers. On the contrary, Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And that's the reason that he said he came that we're focusing on this week. And it fits really nicely with our Advent theme of joy. 
Well, what does it mean to have life and to have it abundantly? Well, let's talk about first about what it doesn't mean, what the abundant life is not. Uh, Charles Dickens published A Christmas Carol in 1843. You've probably all seen some version of it at some point this week even. It recounts the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a wealthy uh, but miserable old man, uh, and he hates Christmas. And as the story opens, uh, he's being asked by a, a couple of people to, to donate money uh, to the people who have nothing to eat and who are cold, they need heat, and uh, he turns them away. And only grudgingly does he allow his, uh, his overworked and, and underpaid employee, Bob Cratchit, uh, to have Christmas Day off uh, with pay. And that night he has a dream. Uh, his former business partner, who is now deceased, Jacob Marley, uh, comes to him. And, and he's dressed in heavy chains and money boxes that are kind of pinned uh, to him. Uh, these are money boxes that have been acquired by greed and, and theft throughout his lifetime. And he warns Scrooge that if he doesn't change his ways, his fate is going to be the same as Jacob Marley's ghost, who now wanders eternity uh, in this outfit. And so uh, that's the warning. And then Scrooge has three dreams. He's visited by the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas yet to come. And long story short, when Scrooge wakes up, he's a completely different man. He's transformed into a kinder, gentler, and more generous man. And what he's learned is that it's not material riches that make life abundant. Many celebrities own lavish homes and expensive cars and have more money than they know what to do with, but they're miserable. Drugs, divorce, plastic surgery, uh, shady business deals, all chasing after the dollar, one more material thing. They're convinced that wealth, youth, new sexual partners, whatever, is going to bring them joy that they want. But Solomon said, uh, I have tried everything under the sun, and it is all vanity. So if the abundant life is not material, well, what is it? Well, obviously, if it's not material, it's spiritual. The Greek word for abundant is the word parason. It means exceedingly, very highly, beyond measure, more, superfluous, a quantity so abundant as to be considerably more than what would expect or anticipate. Do we get the idea, right? Overflowing, uh, abundant joy. It's like a, a cornucopia, right? A, a horn of plenty overflowing with fruit and produce, like a, a Christmas stocking that can't hold all the gifts. It's overflowing uh, with all of this uh, abundance for us. Now, what we need to understand is that our abundant life begins the moment we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And from that moment on, we have eternal life. And we can never lose it. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17.3. Do you want to know what it means to have eternal life? John 17.3 tells us. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So one key to the abundant life is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ who he sent and knowing that we have heaven as our eternal destination. And that brings joy despite whatever circumstances we're in. It's a joy that we can never lose. Now, that's great, right? We all have the hope of heaven. Someday we're going to be in heaven and that is awesome. But what about today? If our only joy is the promise of heaven someday in the future, while we endure a difficult and miserable life, well, we're really missing the whole point of what it means that we have eternal life today. John sa or Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life 
and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. It's already happened. It's past tense. We've passed out of death into life, and we are living in our eternal life right now. So eternal life doesn't begin when we die. It begins the moment we believe. So we already have this eternal life. We've passed out of death into life now. And so what Jesus wants for us is for us to have joy now in this life that we are living. He wants us to enjoy our lives and not necessarily with material blessings. And joy is not presented as something that is equal to long life. It's not number of days necessarily. It's not a bunch of material wealth. It doesn't necessarily mean that either. It doesn't mean status. It doesn't mean any of those things. Jesus didn't promise those things, but what he did promise was the indwelling Holy Spirit who comes, God himself, to live inside of us so that we would become more like Christ. So the abundant life is knowing God, John 17, 3, and becoming like Jesus. Now, sometimes a closer, closer relationship with Jesus comes through suffering. Sometimes that's what he uses to bring us closer to him. God uses all suffering to conform us to the image of his Son. That's why James said, consider it all joy when you go through trials of many kinds, knowing that uh, the testing of your faith produces endurance. Uh, when you're going through trials, do you consider it joy? Well, it's hard to do, right? But if we know that God is using it to conform us to the image of his son, well, then we can look at it with joy. Paul was content in all circumstances. Uh, Paul may have suffered more than any human being alive, right, other than Jesus, and yet he was able to be content in all circumstances because he had the joy of knowing Jesus. I remember back when I was in seminary, uh, we, were, we were in chapel one day, uh, and there was a professor there whose name was Dr. Steve Strauss. Uh, Dr. Steve Strauss had cancer, and he was only a few weeks away from dying. Um, as the music played, uh, Dr. Strauss pushed his way onto his feet, with all the strength that he had. His clothes were hanging off him, you know, like he was 50 pounds, 60, 70 pounds lighter than he was when, when those clothes fit him. And he managed to raise his arms and praise the Lord despite the fact that he was in physical agony and was not going to be long for this earth. But he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew where he was going and he had joy in his circumstances even though he was going, uh, to going through such physical pain. Uh, so we can have joy knowing that it produces Christ-likeness. And when we're becoming more like Jesus, it's, it's not all suffering. There's so much joy in offering our bodies as living sacrifices to people who are in need. That's Romans 12 too, right? There's great joy in offering your body as a living sacrifice and, and being the help that somebody needs. And, and the joy that we have uh, is, comes from knowing that, that what we're doing is producing something that is going to last far beyond this physical life. Its effects will ripple throughout eternity when we're talking about giving our time, giving our money, uh, helping someone in need, and sharing the gospel. These are the things that are the abundant life. So the Holy Spirit will completely transform us if we are willing to see the abundant life as spiritual and not material. If we're going to chase material things, we're never going to find this abundant life. But if we seek Christ and his righteousness, then we will find this abundant life. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those are all spiritual things, right? These things are the things that ought to be growing in us. And if they are, how joyful and how abundant a life that is. 
A commentator, D.A. Carson, suggests that the phrase abundant life means that the life Jesus' true disciples enjoy does not merely mean more time to fill, but life at its scarcely imagined best, a life to be lived. So are we living out the abundant life or are we just passing time? Would we say our lives are marked by joy? The abundant life is available to all who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and those who want to use the gifts that God has given them to affect not only the the here and now, but for all eternity, the kingdom of heaven to come. This life is not a waiting room, brothers and sisters. We are meant to have joy right now. And so this abundant, joyful life is our opportunity to live the life that Jesus Christ has for us. It's a life of disciple-making, kingdom-building, devil-thwarting, eradicating sin, joy that we have when we are following the Lord Jesus Christ. All because on Christmas Day, Jesus became a man lived a perfect sinless life that we could not live, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and is alive today and preparing a place for us right now. So let's think about a couple of applications. The first one is this. What changes can we make to have a more abundant life? I don't know how you all feel about your lives. Do you feel like you're living an abundant life? If not, well, maybe there's a couple minor tweaks you can make. Uh, Maybe there's some way to serve that you haven't thought of before, some way to give your time that you haven't before that might bring you joy. Maybe it's carving out more time with your children and your grandchildren, or maybe it's finding some young young man or woman who, who needs to be discipled and you intentionally spend time discipling that person. Maybe it's not something you need to do. Maybe it's just an attitude that you need to change. Uh, Life is good, and it's a gift from God. Uh, As I get older, I'm starting to notice that, you know, there are minor aches and pains, and and I'm starting to complain about these minor aches and pains that I'm having. And I don't want to be a complainer. I don't want to complain about these things. I want to cherish each day. I want to accept the aging process and I want to make this body, I want to make it do everything that God has for it to do until he calls me home. And so our attitude about life is going to determine whether our lives are a burden or whether they're a joy. Brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you that it doesn't get any better than this, right? This is as good as it's going to get. Uh, We have eternal life right now. We're always going to have problems. Uh, It's not going to get better if, right? That's not going to make us happy. The joy is in knowing our Lord Jesus Christ and becoming more like him. If we're suffering persecution, well, it's nothing compared to what people around the globe are suffering. So this is as good as it's going to get, brothers and sisters. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have his Holy Spirit living inside of us, we should be the most joyous people on the face of the earth. So what changes can we make to have a more abundant life? And second, do you hear the shepherd's voice? Why were the Pharisees unable to understand what Jesus was talking about? Well, it's because they weren't his sheep and he wasn't their shepherd. This Christmas is a good time for a hearing test. Do we hear his voice? If we do and we follow him, we'll have a joyful, abundant life. He is the good shepherd. He is the door to salvation and the door of protection. All others are thieves and robbers. So don't follow the Pied Pipers. They come to steal, to kill, and destroy. Follow Jesus and have joy. Have the abundant life that he died to purchase. Amen? Lord God, we thank you for your son and what he has done for us, Lord. 
this death that he died uh, so that we might pass out of death and into life today, even today, Lord. We are so grateful for this life you've given us. Lord, I pray that uh, you will change us uh, even, even more, Lord, that the fruit of the Spirit would grow within us and that we would uh, be fruitful and produce fruit for your kingdom, Lord. We thank you for your Son and for what he accomplished on Christmas and on the cross. And we just ask all of your blessings, Lord, and that we might be faithful servants in Christ's matchless name. Amen.